Welcome to Module 10 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we began our discussion of common law procedural fairness, focusing first on the historical evolution of administrative law procedural protections at common law. We saw that by the late 1980s, the Supreme Court of Canada had established first that something called procedural fairness existed and that there was no need anymore to distinguish between it and the older concept of natural justice. And the Supreme Court had established a trigger of sorts, that is, a test for when this common law procedural fairness concept applied, a decision of a delegate that affected the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. But there was also a caveat. This duty of procedural fairness did not apply to an administrative decision that was of a legislative nature. Now, in this module, we need to explore this idea of a trigger in greater detail. And in fact, we'll look at two separate common law triggers. First, the standard from the Cardinal case of rights, privileges, or interests. And second, something called legitimate expectation. And so our first trigger, the trigger I'll call the interests trigger. Let me share with you some passages from Supreme Court of Canada decisions concerning common law procedural fairness. They'll give you some sense as to the elements and expectations and exceptions in terms of the application of this interest trigger. The common law duty of fairness supplements existing statutory duties and fills the gap where procedures are not provided for explicitly. That's the Green decision from the Supreme Court in 2017. Note how it harmonizes with that conversation we had in the last module about the common law supplying the omission of the legislature, filling the gaps in terms of procedural protections. The fact that a decision is administrative and affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual is sufficient to trigger the application of the duty of fairness. That's from the Baker decision from 1999, and again, consistent with that cardinal threshold of rights, privileges, or interests. Public decision-makers are required to act fairly in coming to decisions that affects the rights, privileges, and interests of an individual. That's from Dunsmuir, 2008. But there are some buts. There are some exceptions. The doctrine of procedural fairness has been a fundamental component of Canadian administrative law for over 30 years. As a general common law principle, it applies to every public authority making an administrative decision which is not of a legislative nature and which affects the rights, privileges, and interests of an individual, subject, of course, to clear statutory language or necessary implication to the contrary. That's from the Mavi decision in 2011. And note two of the passages which I emphasized with my voice as best I could. A decision that is not of a legislative nature. And next... The reference to procedural fairness perhaps not applying, where contrary to clear statutory language or language that precludes procedural fairness by necessary implication. Some hint there that the common law may give way if the statutory language precludes the application of the common law procedural fairness rule. That shouldn't be too surprising to you. You know enough about the common law by this point in your studies. You know that in a system predicated on parliamentary supremacy, the common law can be overridden by a statutory provision. We'll come back to that in the context of procedural fairness in a few moments. Another passage. 
But the duty of fairness is engaged only if the decision maker makes a decision that affects the rights, privileges, and interests of an individual by, for example, imposing a suspension, not when it acts in a legislative capacity to make rules of general application in the public interest. That's from Green, a decision of the Supreme Court from 2017. So there we have that invocation of a legislative decision, but there's some sense here as to what that means. A legislative capacity, making rules of general application in the public interest. A hint there that we'll need to come back to. Here's a passage from the Federal Court of Appeal in 2020, a case called Olniak. It is axiomatic that at common law, anyone whose rights, privileges, and interests are affected by an administrative decision is, absent valid legislation to the contrary, entitled to procedural fairness. Aha! Once again, that suggestion that the common law can give way in the face of contrary instructions in a statute. And then a final passage, this one from Knight versus Indian Head School Board from the Supreme Court in 1990, and we'll be coming back tonight. A decision of a preliminary nature will not in general trigger the duty to act fairly, whereas a decision of a more final nature may have such an effect. Ah, so that suggests yet another exception in terms of circumstances where the common law duty of procedural fairness may not apply. All right, so those are a lot of passages. Let's try to unpack them and organize them in some sort of systemic way. And so I'm going to actually propose a system drawn from Knight versus Indian Head School Board. It's what I call the Knight three-prong trigger. And so this is, again, we're focusing on the trigger that stems from an interest being affected by the decision maker's decision. But we're going to package it into three tranches or three subtests. And I'm going to rearrange the order slightly from what one finds in, in Knight. And so... I'm going to put the first prong of the Knight case, I'm going to put it last. And so the order I'm going to propose to you, the first consideration, number one, in Knight they talk about the relationship between the employer and the employee. Don't worry about that. That was tied to the facts. Really what I'm going to talk about in this first prong, I'm going to translate it as the nature of the power being exercised. This seems commonsensical because this is a course on administrative law. And as you'll recall from my show me the power mantra, we're really concerned here with delegates who are exercising power pursuant to a statute or every once in a while the royal prerogative. And so we're talking here about the power being a public power, delegated power pursuant to a statute or the royal prerogative. And so effectively, except in those rare instances where we're talking about the royal prerogative, we're talking about statutory decision makers. And so administrative law, the doctrine of fairness, obviously only applies to those sorts of people because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about administrative law. And so the first aspect of this three-prong night test is really the nature of the power being exercised. Is it a public power? Is it a power pursuant to a statute or more rarely the royal prerogative? Now I'm going to add a footnote here just as uh, an aside. And as an aside, there are instances where courts have invoked rudimentary administrative law concepts in grappling with the affairs of private bodies like real estate boards or golf clubs or other forms of associations. Now those are not bodies exercising public power. They're not statutory delegates. However, the courts have, by analogy, reached back into administrative law and drawn out concepts that look a little bit like procedural fairness. They aren't technically administrative law doctrines, but they have drawn inspiration from them. And the courts have gone back and forth on this. Jurisprudence on this is not consistent. You can find jurisprudence, for example, about the extent to which procedural fairness concepts apply, say, to political parties who are effectively in our system private clubs. 
All right. So that's all I'm going to say about the first prong of the night three prong, the nature of the power being exercised. Second prong, the impact of the decision. Now, Knight itself talks about rights. It suggests that there is a duty of procedural fairness only where rights are at issue, by which it means that the decision is a significant one and has an important impact on the individual. But this position from Knight itself requires considerable qualification. Rights in this context is not restricted to claims that are pre-existing legal rights of the sort you would find, say, by virtue of a contract. Remember that cardinal language. Rights, yes, but also privileges and interests. Privileges and interests means that procedural fairness can reach such things as, well, say, the opportunity to receive a license or to engage in a profession or to enter Canada from a foreign state. Procedural fairness comes up quite a bit in immigration law. As Halsbury's Laws of Canada puts it, Today, the duty of fairness applies to suspensions, the refusal of discretionary benefits, investigations, public inquiries, referrals to hearings, and recommendations. In short, the duty to act fairly may apply to any administrative decision that could significantly influence the ultimate decision or expose the individual to some other harm. That's a low threshold. Generally, if someone is sufficiently affected enough to have standing on judicial review... They're likely to have enough of an interest in a decision to attract procedural fairness. There are exceptions to that, but those will be rare. Okay, so let me turn to the third and last prong, the nature of the decision. Under this prong, the Supreme Court in Knight suggested two exceptions. First, that procedural fairness would not apply to preliminary decisions. And second, that procedural fairness would not apply to so-called legislative decisions. So turning first to this preliminary decisions issue, Knight says no fairness in relation to preliminary decisions. But again, this grossly overstates the case. There are cases where delegates are just conducting investigations and just making recommendations where they are obliged to act fairly. Preliminary decisions are subject to the rules of procedural fairness. If, again, and I'll use that passage from Halsbury's Laws of Canada... They are decisions that could significantly influence the ultimate decision or expose the individual to some other harm. All right. So if it's a preliminary decision, yes, pause, look at it, decide whether procedural fairness applies. In most cases, it will apply if that preliminary decision will have a significantly large impact on the ultimate outcome. If it's a recommendation from an investigative body, but that recommendation is almost certain to be adhered to by the final decision maker, well, procedural fairness should apply to that preliminary decision-making process that leads to the recommendation. Turning to the second exception in terms of the nature of the decision, the so-called legislative decisions, As I've said, procedural fairness rarely applies to the exercise of so-called legislative powers. We've seen that repeatedly in the passages I've shared with you. This concept of legislative powers creates huge confusion when teaching administrative law. Now, I just want to remind you, administrative law is about the powers of the executive, not the legislature. And so this reference to legislative powers in this context does not mean the things that the legislature does. We are not talking about parliament. We're still talking about the conduct of the executive. We're still talking about public officials who are exercising statutory power, except in those rare circumstances where at issue might be the royal prerogative. Either way, we're talking about the executive. So how is it that the executive can wield something called legislative powers? Well, 
you will recall from our discussion in the first few modules that the legislative branch has enormous powers to delegate power to the executive. And it's now routine for Parliament to delegate legislation-making powers to delegates. In fact, it's not uncommon for the legislature to enact legislation providing for the making of regulations by the executive, governing some sphere of activity. And we looked at examples in the first modules of this course where statutes provided to the executive the power to make regulations. We call this more generically rulemaking power, the power to make rules that look and walk and talk like legislation that parliament might enact, but in fact constitutes subordinate or delegated legislation made pursuant to a statute of parliament or the provincial legislature that empowers the executive to make this form of delegated legislation. In other instances, parliament may provide to the executive the power to decide matters on a broad discretionary basis, discretionary powers. Look for that word may. Sometimes these discretionary powers are so broad that parliament has delegated to the executive the power to make decisions on broad grounds of public policy. Ministers, for example, may be given powers to make public policy decisions. In the Martineau case, Justice Dixon made the following comment about these sorts of broad policy-based delegated powers. He said, a purely ministerial decision on broad grounds of public policy will typically afford the individual no procedural protection. Similarly, public bodies exercising legislative functions may not be amenable to judicial supervision, at least on procedural grounds. So wonderful. There's these classes of decisions out there for which there are no common law standards of procedural fairness. If they're of a sufficiently general, that is, legislative nature. Well, how do we decide? If we're going to classify these powers into this camp of legislative, we need some better definitions. So how do we define this concept of legislative better? Well, the easy sorts are those legislative decisions that look and walk and talk a lot like what we expect legislation to look like, namely rulemaking. That is circumstances where parliament or the provincial legislature have said to the delegate, you can make regulations or you can make rules governing X, Y, Z. In those sorts of circumstances, we clearly have a legislative decision. Fine. That's the sort of legislative decision to which procedural fairness will not attach. What about this other concept of broad policy-based discretionary decision-making. How do we know if that's a legislative power or not? Well, let's start with a, a definition that's offered by the English administrative lawyer DeSmith. A legislative act is the creation and promulgation of a general rule of conduct, a general rule of conduct, without reference to particular cases. On the other hand, a non-legislative act, which he calls administrative, just to add more confusion here, cannot be exactly defined, but it includes the adoption of a policy, the making an issue of a specific direction, and the application of a general rule to a particular case in accordance with the requirements of policy or expediency or administrative practice. All right, so let's unpack that, especially that reference to a general rule of conduct. So if we were to summarize the qualities of decisions that qualify for this category of legislative decision, we would say, first, it's usually discretionary. Look for that word may. It's also then second general in its application. And so as Halsbury's laws of Canada say, usually the power is of a general application. It will not be directed at a particular individual. 
Sometimes courts have made this point by talking about something being of public convenience. That is, it applies to the general public and not a matter of private convenience. That is, it's not targeted or, or focused on an individual or a specified subset of individuals. If the matter is a matter of private convenience, that is, it's of private concern, it's, it's focused on a subset of individuals, then it's not likely to be a legislative decision. And so the more personal the focus of the so-called legislative decision, the more likely it is that the delegate's power loses that legislative nature and becomes more amenable to the application of common law procedural fairness. And then a third requirement, a third requirement in terms of the legislative decision-making, it's got to be based on the exercise of judgment after assessing public policy considerations. Remember, courts don't really like to be perceived as making policy choices. So three things, again, discretionary, general and application, and based on the exercise of judgment focused on public policy considerations. Those qualities wrapped together typically are the qualities that constitute a legislative decision. Now, I have to add a caveat. I, I have to add an exception to this exception. Sometimes even a legislative power will attract procedural fairness. Remember, the more personal the nature of the decision, the more it focuses on an individual or a subset of individuals, the more likely it is that delegate's power loses its legislative nature. Again, the more it targets that narrow subset of persons, the more it is likely to be perceived as the sort of thing that should attract procedural fairness. This is what I call the Homex exception after a Supreme Court decision called Homex. In the Homex case, that involved actually the making of bylaws by a municipality. And recall, a municipality is a delegate. They're not a legislature. They're exercising administrative power. And they were making a bylaw, which looks and walks and talks a lot like what we would expect legislation to look like. So this was a form of rulemaking. However, the bylaw was focused specifically on one individual, in this case, a company. One company whose conduct had to upset the municipality. We won't have to sweat the details for our purposes. But the bottom line is that the Supreme Court looks at this decision, this bylaw made by the municipality, and concludes the municipality passed the bylaw to go after this company. The company was the specific target. The fact that the municipality had made a policy decision that had an immediate and specific target prompted the court to say, mm, this isn't really a legislative decision. This is the sort of decision to which common law procedural fairness should apply. And so the Homex exception suggests that even when you're trying to decide whether something's legislative or not, it's not enough simply to say, hey, this is, say, a form of delegated legislation. You can sometimes pierce that veil and look at the actual impact in order to argue that, in fact, procedural fairness should attach because there's a narrow subset of individuals who are affected. Okay, there are two other exceptions to procedural fairness I'll just mention very briefly. As I've suggested in the passages I shared with you, a statutory bar. A statute can exclude the application of common law procedural fairness. Remember that concept of parliamentary supremacy. And so if you're saying, as a matter of common law, procedural fairness, it's triggered, I should get a hearing, and the statute says no hearing for you, well, the statute prevails against the common law. And then last, in terms of exceptions to procedural fairness, emergencies. There is a body of case law stating that procedural fairness need not be met in emergencies. All right, let's set aside this first common law trigger and look at the second one called legitimate expectation. We know from Cardinal and from the three-prong test in Knight that the classic situation in which 
principles of procedural fairness apply is where there's some legal right, interest, privilege at issue. Remember the Cooper case. You can't demolish my building without meeting the duty of fairness. But good public law administration may require more than a duty being triggered where some legal right, interest, privilege is affected. There might be a need for a separate trigger. Why? Because you may have a promise from a delegate that they will act in a certain way. And as a matter of procedural fairness, perhaps it's in the interest of good administration to oblige the delegate to adhere to that promise. Otherwise, the exercise of administrative power may be cast into disrepute. Well, let me share with you some passages again from the Supreme Court of Canada. This one from Agrera in 2013. If a public authority has made representations about the procedure it will follow in making a particular decision, or if it has consistently adhered to certain procedural practices in the past in making such a decision, the scope of the duty of procedural fairness owed to the affected person will be broader than it otherwise would have been. And so here, a reference to representations or consistent practice equaling a promise that may give rise to this concept of legitimate expectation. Here's a passage from Brown and Evans, Judicial Review of Administrative Action in Canada, which is regularly cited with approval by the Supreme Court. A legitimate expectation may result from an official practice or assurance that certain procedures will be followed as part of the decision-making process. Of course, the practice or conduct said to give rise to the reasonable expectation must be clear, unambiguous, and unqualified. Those are important qualifiers, and we'll come back to them. Here's another passage, this time from Mavi, a 2011 Supreme Court case, where a government official makes representations within the scope of his or her authority to an individual about an administrative process that the government will follow, and the representations said to give rise to the legitimate expectation are clear, unambiguous, and unqualified, the government may be held to its word, providing the representations are procedural in nature and do not conflict with the decision-maker's statutory duty. Proof of reliance is not a prerequisite. In Mavi also, the Supreme Court explained what was meant by this reference to clear, unambiguous, and unqualified by comparing it with the law of contract. It said, generally speaking, government representations will be considered sufficiently precise for purposes of the doctrine of legitimate expectation if, had they been made in the context of private law contract, they would be sufficiently certain to be capable of enforcement. In other words, if the promise is definite enough to constitute something that would create a contract and would be enforceable in contract, that would be definite enough to give rise to legitimate expectation. Now, a couple qualifiers. The doctrine of legitimate expectation cannot give rise to substantive rights. You can't be promised an outcome. It's about procedural promises. We will see how substantive promises about outcomes, you will get the license, you will be allowed to get into Canada. Those sorts of promises can have an effect on the content of procedural fairness, but they do not themselves trigger legitimate expectation. Okay, enough pithy passages from the Supreme Court. Let's pull legitimate expectation together in terms of a test of sorts. Where it applies, legitimate expectation is a concept of procedural fairness that obliges delegates who promise to proceed in a certain way to in fact keep that promise. And for it to arise, first, there must be a promise or representation from a delegate that must be sufficiently clear, unambiguous, and unqualified. 
And this can be an express representation or, as I've suggested, can be adherence to past practices, procedural practices that were followed in the past in making similar decisions. So either an express promise or a past pattern of practice. Second, it must be a procedural promise, a promise to proceed in a certain way, not a substantive promise. It's a promise to give you a hearing, not a promise to give you a license. Give you a hearing, that's a procedural promise. Give you a license, that's a substantive promise. Now, there is a caveat to the notion that substantive promises can never be enforced in administrative law. It's this concept of public law promissory estoppel. It's been raised in a handful of Supreme Court cases. It's rarely won. It's very, very infrequently that you will see public law promissory estoppel argued, let alone prevail. It's something of a unicorn, in other words, in Canadian administrative law. But basically, it says that where there is a sufficiently clear and unambiguous promise about an outcome that a person then relies upon and changes their conduct in response to, that can give rise to this estoppel concept, obliging the decision maker not to go back on their a promise. The problem is that the courts have been reluctant to enforce this because to do so would generally circumvent the statutory authorities that the decision maker is supposed to administer. And so if a decision maker is on a lark of their own and says, I'm going to give you a license, and the person is detrimentally affected, that is, they change their behavior in reliance upon that promise, but it turns out that the statute says you don't get a license until you've passed the driving exam, for the court to turn around and say to the applicant, yeah, yeah, you can get a license, even though you didn't pass the driver's test because this person made this promise, well, that would have the effect of rewriting the legislation, and courts are not going to do that. Okay, a couple other things we know about legitimate expectation, just to wrap up this module. First, much like with the regular interests trigger, the ninth three-prong, legitimate expectation does not apply to legislative decisions. So that concept of legislative, it also pertains to this concept of legitimate expectation. If the decision is legislative in nature, no legitimate expectation for you. And then, of course, this remains a source of common law procedural fairness, legitimate expectation does. And so if there's a statutory provision that says no hearing for you, a delegate can't turn around and say, I'm going to give you a hearing anyway. That won't work. If the statute precludes the promise, if the statute says the procedure that was promised is unavailable, well, then the statute prevails. And so in the event of a conflict between a promise and the statute, the statute will always prevail. Okay, so let's wrap up this module. I've said that there are two common law triggers you need to worry about when it comes to procedural fairness. The first is what I've called the interests trigger, and there I focused on the knight three-prong test. The second is legitimate expectation. There are requirements for both of these different triggers. There are also exceptions for these triggers. The bottom line is that the common law only applies to the extent that the statute permits it to apply. That puts it on a very different footing than the constitutional concept of fundamental justice in Section 7 of the Charter. That, then, is the topic of our next module. Specifically, when is Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms triggered to extend procedural protections to individuals? This ends Module 10.